You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with Kathleen. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Great. So nice to be with you. Um, Why don't you take us sort of back to the beginning in your relationship with alcohol? Where did it all start for you? You know, I love... I love our stories and I love um, our recovery stories. It's something that I'm really fond of, finding connection with other people in recovery around sharing our stories and finding connection in um, people who are really different from me, recognizing what they think and feel and how they behave and seeing myself in that. Um, so I really appreciate uh, your podcast and the opportunity to share a part of my story, but my story goes way back, like um, definitely in my family, we have a generational uh, alcohol use disorder issues. And when I was born in the early uh, 60s, like my mother was told to drink in order to treat anxiety and in order to get the milk to come, that sort of thing. So I was, like, I was exposed to it very young. I was literally told that when I had my baby in 2008. Oh, I was wow. To get my milk to come in. So just carry on. I just felt like I could not, not say something about that. I know. And also to treat a colicky baby, you know, they gave me whiskey in a bottle and there's no surprise that the full circle, uh, I ended my drinking career drinking whiskey from a bottle. So that mm, full circle. I also grew up in a family that was steeped in grief. Like our culture, our society was in grief. Our president and the United States had just been assassinated Right before I was born, a, a series of world leaders and spiritual political leaders had been um, assassinated and like grief was heavy. And um, my older brother had died just before I was born. My brother's twin suddenly in a very rural place. And my parents did not have the emotional and medical support they needed in a rural oil camp in Colombia um, in the middle of the jungle to like treat how they were feeling and how they dealt with, you know, my brother, the loss of my brother. And you were born in an oil camp in Columbia. My brother was, uh, uh, I was born in America after my parents, um, moved back. Uh, okay. but it definitely was the experience was that they were really struggling with, uh, how they felt. And we never talked about grief. We never talked about my brother who died. Um, they didn't have that tool. They had the tool of alcohol. Um, they celebrated with it. They dealt with uh, all of their feelings with alcohol. And I recently, my dad died just about a year ago. And uh, last month we moved my mom into memory care. And I found some like writings about that time that they had written uh, a narrative of what happened. And probably my mother's in memory care, so she can't explain it to me, but probably they wrote it afterwards when they were learning to um to express their feelings about grief. But at the time, like they drank and they had a really volatile feelings and, and I was born into that. And I was, I came out queer in all the ways I was sensitive and odd. And, um, uh, and I had big feelings. I remember a preschool teacher sent home a note saying that I, I danced to the beat of a different drummer. And, um, and I had a mad crush on my, on my kindergarten kindergarten teacher, teacher, Mrs. Miss Woods. It was a mad crush. 
In fact, I remember writing like these like love letters about um, when the following year she got married, I was heartbroken. I wrote love letters and mailed them in my Fisher Price like mailbox. Um, anyways, I was gay and um, odd and uh, in a world where uh, my very conservative, uh, religiously and politically conservative family didn't know what to do with me. And um, and I had some like trauma as a kid that was hard. Some of it's unconscionable stuff and some of it was like an accident. I was uh, attacked by a police dog, a retired police dog and mauled as a kid. And um, my head, I have a big scar on my head and my eyesight was damaged and it was really hard. I felt unsafe. Um, all of that came together to really make me feel unsafe in the world. And I had access to alcohol because my family, especially on my dad's side, the Irish Catholics, like they partied for everything, um, a wake or a graduation or a birthday or any holiday, like they partied or get togethers were quite, quite enthusiastic um, in the centering around alcohol. And I learned to drink, uh, over drink, bench drink in from my cousins downstairs in the basement um, as a kid. And and I had access to the, um, as a young person led to beer and wine. It was always available in my house. They didn't really drink hard liquor, but I would um, pour the stein for my dad and bring it to him as a soothing tool for him. And I would drink the rest of it um, from a young age and access. And it was the only tool I had. It was the only tool that was modeled for me and how to deal with feeling um, uncomfortable in my body, feeling uncomfortable in the world. Definitely. There were some problems for people in my family who they they were seen as the problem that most of their characters, but some of them like were going too far. They weren't drinking responsibly. Um, so I did have that uh, voice that would go, uh-oh, sometimes. Um, and 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 I um and it, you know, it also worked for me, like numbing out. Like there's other ways that I numbed out. Like I was a voracious reader. Um, I would, uh, I had a rich fantasy life. I loved to write and um, do art. And um, I was a bit of a sporty kid. And I, I never stopped trying to numb out. Like for me, that was something that I sought my whole life. And maybe that's what made me different from some of the other kids who, or other family members who were able to drink without consequences. But I had some, got caught with alcohol when I was a young person in um, high school in my locker. It was not my alcohol. I was hiding it, holding it for someone, but ended up getting, uh, having medical intervention and when I had the intake, like I answered honestly to all the questions and it was revealed that I was gay um, in uh, suburban Texas as a teenager. And so I had, I was in a medical adult medical facility psych ward um, for quite a period of time, trying to change those two things, my relationship with alcohol and my not growing out of my tomboy phase I found some, you know, clarity in letting go of, of the substances then, but I didn't have any other tools. And it was quite a, quite a harsh experience also, spending time curling my hair and makeup as part of my treatment every day and working on my relationship with how I felt um, about uh, the opposite sex. Um, it didn't work. Uh, I'm still very gay. Um, 
And and I'm sure everyone everyone involved was doing the best they could, but it was really hard to be treated that way as a kid. And I, you know, went off in the world and I found people who were like me in uh, college was uh, a place where I found people who were gay um, and who were uh, creative like me um, and who shared some interests with me. And I had quit drinking in order to go to um, an alternative school. There was some rules about that. I entered college like being completely um, alcohol free. But I did find other substances. I picked Humboldt State University as the place I went to go to college. At the time, I wasn't doing anything like that, but uh, it was the farthest school away from the conservative place I lived in Southern California that I could afford and stay in state. And I met my partner there and the partner who uh, I'm still married to today. And they went on this journey with me as I discovered, as I started to question my relationship with alcohol over and over, I would get that little voice that said, "Uh uh-oh. Um, when I uh, was in a dangerous situation or I had um, uh, some sort of issues around uh, consequences or issues with uh, my drinking being different than other people um, or my need to check out different from other people. And I did have a moment uh, where I had a friend who, well, I mean, I had a lot of exposure to people Finding like a recovery through 12 steps. Like I have a legacy of drinking too much in my family. I have a legacy in the Irish Catholic side and a legacy in the temperance side of my family, my mother's side of people who avoided alcohol. And 12 steps was the only solution that was presented to me when I was 13, 14, and as I was older. And and there's a legacy of that also in my family. There's people in my family who found recovery through that. And it worked for them, but for me, um, it wasn't something that felt authentic to me. And like, I thought I had to really like be a skid row bum in order to need that from what I knew from popular media. I didn't know anything else. Uh, So I just continued to try to make it work, try to make alcohol work. And I had a, um, I had a friend in, in my, when I was in my thirties who, um, overdosed and died and it was just like we had very similar days um we had very similar evenings I mean that um I had done pretty much had the same experience she did that day that evening but uh she overdosed and died at her birthday party and I didn't make it to that birthday party because I was drinking um and I was too drunk and some of our other friends were too drunk to go to that party and people assumed at the party that she had just um drunk too much and passed out I didn't realize that she had OD'd. And my wife, my partner at the time, was the most responsible one of us, of all of us. And so they called her to go meet um, my friend's mother at the hospital to determine, um, she was a nurse, and to determine whether or not, what the next steps were to deal with her brain-dead daughter. The look in her eyes when she walked in and saw us, like, covered in black leather and bruised and Gabby and Gracie, like um, the look on her face really did something that reached something in me that I could see what my future was. And I could see that like just like just disgust and also just like compassion and just like it reached something. And that was the day where I quit drinking. I was 32. 
And I quit drinking. I quit smoking all the stuff. I quit drinking coffee. I quit doing all the things I did to numb out. And I had to find a new way to live. And I had some other friends who did that too at the same time for there's some bad stuff going around in our town. And there's a bunch of people that passed away unexpectedly. And they got sober too. And so I did some 12 steps with them. Um, unfortunately, I found a really toxic group. I know they're not all that way, but this one was, and I didn't know any different. It really felt like, like I just couldn't be part of that group. And so I looked for another way to do it. And there was no This Naked Mind. There was memoirs. And there were, um, I was a, I worked at a bookstore and we had a pretty vibrant author series, speaking series and book signing program that I worked on. And I got to meet some of the early like alcohol memoirists, like, and hear their stories and learn from them and see them over time because I worked there for years. And I saw, you know, Carolyn Knapp on her first um, book and Drinking Love Story. I wasn't sure I was ready for that. Um, but by the time Packer 2 came out, I got to meet Lucy and I got to really hear her story. And by then, like I had removed alcohol, was looking for other things to put in that place. And Eddie Lamont was one of our um, author series. And I got to see her through a bunch of different books. And initially I was like, no, or I could relate to the novels about being wasted, but then the recovery, like I could not relate to. And, but it planted some seed that I could find a life that was different. Um, and I could have joy that I could not just survive life, but I could find joy. So were you not drinking at this time? Yeah, I stopped drinking when I was 32. You were not drinking, but you were in this place of just like not being able to relate to the recovery aspects no and I had no community like I was doing it on my own I started walking on the beach after work every day like that's where it started and then I looked into the ocean and I saw the surfers out there and I grew up in southern California and and Houston Texas so like totally y'all uh and a little northern California hella so yeah I mean my accent but there were I grew up surfing and then like I didn't do it for years because I was really prioritized on drinking and finding my queer, queer community in San Francisco where we all met in the bars. And um, that's where we found our chosen family and that's where we found um, our friends and that's where we did art and did our political work. Like it was all centered in bars and how we celebrated and how we celebrated every holiday that we didn't spend with our own families. Um, yeah, uh, so, and to be separated from that community was really hard. So, um, and there was like a clean and sober, like queer community, but I wasn't part of it uh, because uh, it wasn't tenable for me at the time. Um, so I was alone, you know, trying to figure out a way. And I found surfing, like my first sober pride. Um, I went surfing with my wife and, or my partner at the time. And uh, I knew that I couldn't go to that giant celebration where I would end up face down with a bad sunburn in the, in the grass or um, in the fairy village eating cookies, magic cookies. Like I, I didn't know how to do it. And so instead, you know, we, I took care of myself by going surfing and that was my first time surfing as an adult. And it was really powerful. All of the, the beauty of nature and all the like letting go and being, um, not having control of the waves and the weather and and just the freedom there like it was just it was a spiritual experience and um 
and I pursued that hard. Uh, I was uh, pretty obsessed with surfing for, um, oh, maybe a decade, but it was a way for me to make a radical change. And then in order to surf, I need to take better care of my body and condition. So I took up going to gym, took up running, took up kickboxing. Like I um, really worked on, I went back to a lot of those things I did as a child. The things before I started drinking all the time, like those things like uh, my, the art and my story writing as a kid and my water um, living at the beach and, and my gardening. Like I ended up, you know, taking up uh, organic uh, gardening and farming, ended up getting certified as an um, organic gardener and farmer in the agroecology program in Santa Cruz and started farming. Like it was a, my life changed a lot, but I didn't have a community. And uh, that was something that was uh, difficult. I always ran into people who shared an interest in, um, in like self-help and like I did book groups and I did, I connected with people, um, but it wasn't something that was really, um, it wasn't like, you know, being able to join, you know, Mighty Networks, this Naked Mind group, but we didn't have that. And I did connect to 12 Steps again when I moved back to the Bay Area. I think because I was afraid of what would happen that I would just go back to that life. I needed to move back to the city um, away from the farm where uh, I was living for my wife's work. And, and I found community, but I could never sit all the way down, which is the truth for me. I found community, but there is something where me being the problem, me being the sole problem, and that me needing to work harder at accepting that was the solution. I don't know, I've never felt like every single time that I drank, you know, I was drinking sober, you know, in my youth, like before I quit drinking the last time that I would crack that bottle, I would buy it, I'd crack it, I'd pour it, I'd drink it. Like I, that was a sober choice each time. And also it wasn't. I know more about the science and how long it takes for the alcohol to leave the body and those deep neuro uh, neural networks that I built as that was my solution to feel, to deal with how I felt. But at the time I didn't know that. And, um, and I continued to look for outside sources, like during the, you know, like everything, like I looked spiritual places. I, I had a shaman. I had an exorcism. I went to all sorts of churches and temples. Like I explored all sorts of tools. Uh, definitely, um, uh, exercise being one that movement and zone that was really helpful writing. I was really connected to writing communities and exercise communities, but didn't really have a strong recovery community that I could sit all the way down in. Um, and so I created them, you know, and I uh, started uh, memoir reading book groups and stuff like that. And I started my own like um, meetings where we could talk about recovery and uh, that worked for me in some ways. And, uh, and then I moved to Texas a few years ago, again, for my wife's group, uh, for my wife's work. And that was something where I needed to restart my life here. And then we had the pandemic. And when I moved to Texas, there was a lot of young people and they were getting sober on Insta social with the social influencers who were not drinking, um, the sober curious folk. And, uh, um, and that's how I you know, found this naked mind.
And then, so then we started reading that in my book groups and we'd read a chapter a week and walk through the science and, and learning that uh, it's not me, it's you, <laughs> alcohol, um, to learn that this like toxic, highly addictive, very marketed um, substance had a had part in it, um, a significant part in you know why my community used it the way we did, you know, and so that was just a, a super big gift to have um, to be exposed to all of that and be able to bring that into the community that of people that I worked with, and the pandemic really, you know, I uh, joined some online uh, communities and one that I was training to be certified as a coach in that community, and it. They made like it just fell apart for the queer community. They fired some queer, the queer leadership, and the entire queer community uh, needed a safe place to uh, land. And so, me and some of my friends created like a an RCO recovery um, community organization to help support folks, queer folks, and allies who um, were set adrift. Um, a lot of people. It was their only thing that they were doing. And um, and some people like this. Um, so anyways, we started, we ended up a year ago, like we uh, formed a nonprofit for that organization at sonderrecovery.org. And it is a, you know, one of the most precious things that came out of that, which I just adore that, that we can make like gorgeous stuff out of stuff that's hard. Um, and I celebrated my 25th, 25th sobriety birthday at that uh, there. And for my birthday every year, I look for something, you know, to um, grow and change. And the this Naked Mind certification came up. The certification program I was involved in fell apart. Uh, my leadership left. And so um, it was an opportunity for me to, you know, give it a try. And on my first interview with Scott, my first question was, is it safe here for people like me? Mm. Are there queer people here? And I'm sure the first question that I had for you in the intensive, Annie, was I'm different. Are there people like me? Can, is it okay for me to be here? Like I am looking for the safe space still today. Um, and I'm super excited that in fact, we found each other in our cohort. We found, uh, the queer coaches found each other. We banded together and created affinity groups and worked together on our um, certification program. And, and now we're working together at uh, Living Proud AF, um, which is um, a website that we've put together that um, for all of us, a landing page for us all to work together in coaching. And we're having the opportunity to coach on a live alcohol experiment for pride and to be able to have that for our community, to be able to have a place where you could enter into a, a recovery space that is queer to start with. You don't have to search for the safety there. Whew, that's big. I feel really really lucky and grateful that um, this Naked Mind was willing to um, take a risk with us and give us the opportunity to, um, to create this space, this like brave space that, um, that isn't centered on um, getting drunk together in the Castro or um, in the East Village. Like it's a safe space that, um, where people can look at their, their relationship with alcohol and be curious about it. Um, I'm really excited about the opportunities that um, I have to bring our coaching methods to um, the queer community, both in um, my nonprofit and in my private coaching and in our in our group coaching at um, 
that we're working on together and the life alcohol experiment. Like what a joy that I, I wish, you know, that when I was young, that I had something like this. Um, I feel like I, I would have had an opportunity much younger to be present in my life, feeling the hard things, doing the hard things, showing up, you know, uh, clear. Like I didn't have that for decades. And I had some physical sobriety, but I didn't have stoke. I'm into like stoked and sober, like stoke life coaching is the stuff I do. Like I want to stoke the embers, you know, but also it's like, I'm stoked. Like I'm really grateful. Like I didn't know on this side that I could be, have such a sweet, precious life and that I could help other, so many other people run across, I run across their paths who are looking for a way to just question it without having to make a commitment or having to wait until they're at the end of the rope, you know, that you can look at that relationship with anything. How does it make you feel? How does it make you think? How does it make you act? You're not the pros and cons. The tool, the tool system, the tool set that um, this naked mind has is, is a gift. And really, I'm super grateful to you for writing that book. It brought me beyond where I was, like with, uh, I don't know, I had 20 something years of not drinking by the time I read The Snake of Mind. Um, but I was able to move from being unaware of a problem um, to like aware, to awake. I got to move to alive with uh, The Snake of Mind training. Like that was a different experience than I had um, in my sobriety before that how free do you want to be I want to be free I want to look at all the ways that my thinking all the ways that my feelings all the way my behavior is connected to you know and how I I have so much agency in what I think and feel and what lens I look through so my gosh I'm so grateful oh, I love that gosh it's so cool to hear this whole journey and this whole story and I just have like a a big grin on my face because it's it's such a ripple like it's it's just like such a ripple you know like the things that you've been able to do and the people you've been able to impact and it's just awesome it's really incredible so let me ask you um sort of two two final questions which is first of all I know that you mentioned uh it was sonderrecovery.org and then um I absolutely love what you coaches have done with uh, living. Wait, what is the website again? It's living proud AF. Living proud AF. Okay. Com, living yes. proud AF, which is awesome for sure. Should check it out. It's the best branding I've seen. It's so fun. And where else can people find you personally? Stoke Life Coaching. Stoke Life Coaching. Okay, great. So, I've been doing that for a while and it's um, sweet. That's sweet. And then we'll put all those links in the chat. And then Kathleen, if you were going to go back to, um, you know what, let's go back to a version of yourself that was sober, but just not connected. And uh, what would you tell her? Well, that's interesting. Um, well, the idea that um, uh, it doesn't have to be bad enough to stop something that it could just not be serving you. Like I really needed to know that, that mm -hmm. I could be more free, that I could be more free. I could be more stoked. Like I really, I needed that. I needed that even farther back where it's not like I didn't have to be on skid row 
to look at my relationship with alcohol and drugs. Like I didn't have to, or all of the things, all the ways that I harmed myself. Like I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to be that bad. That I could look at how is it serving me? Let me be curious about it. Like it doesn't have to be bad. It could be that, like, you know, in some ways, you know, alcohol kept me alive. Um, I was really struggling as a kid and I, uh, and so many of the queer community, like suicidal ideation is just part of the package. Like plan B is to check out that we're not welcome in the world. And so like, I also honor that, you know, I did the best I could with the tools I had. I wish I had better tools. I wish, you know, uh, and hopefully they're teaching this naked mind to kids um, before you know it, because um, just looking at the way our thoughts and our feelings affect and our effect on our thoughts and feelings and our behavior, how that all can work in a way that like it can, I really can change how I feel and think. I really can change how I behave in the world just by being aware of it and practicing doing something, thinking something, feeling something different. Powerful. So good. Well, is there anything else you want to share? I'm just, I'm stoked that you are collecting stories and that, um, that we're part of that part of your, uh, your, your queer community is uh, grateful to be part of um, this naked mind and thanks for um, sharing our stories. I'm so grateful to all of you. I'm so grateful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how This Naked Mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious. Stay curious.